0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church Podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. And uh, so we need to remind ourselves of believers about the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've asked you to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 9 specifically this morning because it is an important chapter in what we're going to be uh, talking about. But let me, before we do this and read these few verses together, let me remind you of what, uh, what the book of Hebrews is all about. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Wish we did, but we don't. Some say it was Paul. Certainly there's parts of it looks like Paul's style, but then others say it was Dr. Luke. Others say it was somebody else. The fact is we just don't know. We don't know from where it was written. Uh, Some say it was written from Rome because at the end he says uh, uh, those from Italy greet you and so forth. Uh, But what we do know for sure, we know why it was written. And that's the most important thing. We know why this was written, And the reason for the book of Hebrews was very, very simple. It was addressing Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, or Messianic Christians, as we would call them today. And what had happened was, of course, was that whenever the Romans, whenever they came into any nation and they conquered that nation, uh, what they would do is they would uh, allow those people to continue to worship their particular gods— but they would incorporate their gods into the pantheon of Roman gods. And as long as they worshiped those gods in the pantheon of Roman gods, that was fine. For instance, I, I have stood in Italy, in Rome itself, some of you probably too, and you've stood in that temple called the Pantheon. It's the, it's the best ancient Roman building in all of Rome. And when you stand in that massive building and you look up, there's a great big 30-foot hole in the ceiling, deliberately made in the ceiling. And whenever the sun goes around the sky, that light goes all around that dome. And when you look up at the dome, in, in, in recesses in the dome, there was places where they put images of their gods. So this was a pantheon to the gods, to worship the gods. But the trouble was, whenever they conquered uh, the Jews then the Jews didn't worship gods. They only worship one god, Yahweh. And they didn't have any graven image because they weren't allowed to have any graven image of anything. And so that was a problem. So, so to facilitate uh, the, that conquered nation, what the Romans did was they said, we will make your religion legal. You can legally worship Yahweh. And you don't need to have your graven images. That you don't want that fine. We want to accommodate that so we'll make your religion legal, so you can legally worship Yahweh. And so for a long time that's what happened. And that was fine until Jesus came along. And Jesus came and he died, rose again, back to the glory, and the Christian church was born. And initially there was lots of Jews becoming Christians. And when they became Christians, as far as the Romans were concerned, they were just another sect of Judaism. And for a while that didn't bother them. They just said, well, this is another splinter group of Judaism. It's still Judaism, but a little bit different, so let them get on with it. But then the trouble came when later on, when there was more Gentiles coming into the church than there was Jews. And the Romans then had a problem on their hands because now they were saying, no, this is a different religion. This is not the same as Judaism. This is a different religion. And what did they do? They outlawed Christianity. They made Christianity illegal. Now that presented a problem, particularly for the Jewish Christians. Because as you can imagine, when Jews became Christians, the rest of the Jews weren't happy about that for a start, but they couldn't do much about it. But now Gentiles were becoming Christians, and the Romans now outlawed Christianity, so those Jews who had become Christians are caught between a rock and a hard place. They're already coming under pressure from their Jewish friends and family and relations and so forth and community, but now Rome has made their religion illegal. And the temptation was, and this is why the writer wrote this book, the temptation was then for those Jewish Christians, that suits written to, the danger was to go back under Judaism where it was safe, where it was legal, where their lives would not be endangered or their family or their business or their work or whatever. And the writer to Hebrews is saying, do not do that. Don't do it. You've been under that law. You've been under Judaism. You've come out from that into the freedom of Christ. Don't go back again. I know it's difficult. I know you're under pressure. I know you're being threatened and persecuted, but do not go back into Judaism. Stay with Christ. Stay with Christianity because it's better. Jesus is better than Moses, than Abraham, than Melchizedek, than the prophets, than the angels, He's better than all of that. And we have a greater covenant. Why is it greater? Why is it better? Because it's founded on better promises. And and we have a better guarantee, Jesus Christ himself. And so he writes this book, whoever it was, writes this book to encourage those Jewish Christians to stay with Christ, to stay with the faith, to stick it through, no matter what the cost is going to be, to hang in there, get through it, The Lord will be with you and to remind them again how better Christ is and how better Christianity is and so forth. And when you come to chapter nine and 10 especially, and particularly 9 we're gonna look at for a little bit this morning, is that he talks about what Christ has done for us and what he's doing to us and what he will yet do for us. And it's all relating to the shed blood of Christ. Now, there are many things that are valued and are treasured in this life for their uniqueness and for their rarity. Uh, you think uh, of, of the great masters. Uh, I bought a newspaper yesterday, I think it was The Telegraph, and inside, maybe it was a newsletter, and inside it was a print of one of the master paintings. But when you think of the Mona Lisa, for, for instance, and her enigmatic smile, and, uh, and, and what is that worth? It's priceless. It is absolutely priceless because it's so rare and it's of such unique quality. Other things are prized for their their intrinsic beauty and their versatility, their usefulness, like gold or diamonds. A a diamond is a beautiful thing and it it can grace the finger of a woman. It can be in the tiara of a princess or the crown of a queen, but it also can be used in industry. It can be used to cut the hardest materials. It's so versatile. And so it's of great value and it's a great use in many, many areas. Uh, think of oil, for instance. Think of the, the energy and the power that oil produces. And there's vast resources that we have at our fingertips simply because of oil. And uh, think of the vast uh, uh, economies that that produces. And so there's many things like that. But how do you value the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you begin to make an estimation of what the blood is worth for rarity, for uniqueness, for power, for versatility? There is no other substance in the whole universe like the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Peter calls precious blood, precious blood, We talk about the blood. We sing about the blood. We pray and we plead the blood. But what do we know about the blood? What do we think when we think about the blood? What does it actually do for us? What has it done for us? What is it doing for us even right now? From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible talks about blood. Right there at the beginning in Genesis 3, where God had to kill an innocent animal to put coats of skin To cover the fallen nakedness of Adam and Eve. Right there, where Cain slew his brother Abel, and his blood cried out from the ground for justice and vengeance. And the blood that was shed in the tabernacle with the the goats and the heifers and the lambs and the rams, there was a continuous flow of blood in that tabernacle where those animals' lives were sacrificed. And then you come into the New Testament, of course, and you come to Christ Himself shedding His own precious blood. So, from the very dawn of history, right away through, all the way through to Revelation, the Bible speaks of the blood. Let's read just a few verses together uh, from Hebrews chapter 9, reading from verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things— are purified with blood. Notice it says almost all things. Why does it say that? Because some things were purified by water and some things were purified by fire, but almost all things were purified with blood. And in this wonderful statement, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins whatsoever. God set himself a precedent for this again in Genesis 3, 21, where those innocent animals had to die, and its skins was given to Adam and Eve, who had been covering themselves with fig leaves to cover their fallenness. For the first time, they became so conscious and aware of their nakedness before God. Never had been conscious of that before, but now they are. So God comes and gives them coats of skin. So obviously an animal's life had to, be, uh, had to die and the blood had to be shed and it was innocent blood for guilty blood. That's what that stands for. And then we're reminded how that in the great tabernacle in the wilderness, that great tent, if you want to call it that, and how inside that, There was another tent, and it was divided into two, the holy place and the most holy place, or the holiest of holies. And how that the priests and the Levites and all of those who were working to make the sacrifices and to do all that was commanded by Moses, and that's why the book of Leviticus and Hebrews are companion books, You know, when you're reading through the book of Leviticus, oftentimes it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. It's so far from from our customs and our things that we have grown up with. But whenever you read the book of Hebrews and you see the reason for those things, because all of those things, the tabernacle and all the furnishings and and, and how they were made and all the dimensions and, and how the priests even were dressed, all of those things were speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ that was to come. And that's why it's so important when you read those things to remember God gave this pattern on the mount because it was speaking about Jesus. And it's an interesting study, even on its own. But the high priest, once a year, and only once a year, and only the high priest, as we know, would have to go into not just the holy place, but the holiest of holies. And he'd have to take blood in there. A sacrifice had to be made to make atonement for his own personal sins and then also for the sins of the whole nation collectively. Once a year, and only once a year, and only the high priest, and in that case it was Aaron, Moses' brother, only he was allowed to go in to do this. And so he would take uh, a censer and he would put his hand behind the veil. <coughs> And when that censor had done its work, then he would go in and he would have blood with him and he would walk over to the Ark of the Covenant, which wasn't a big piece of furniture, by the way. It was only about three feet by 18 inches. So it wasn't big, but it was mightily important. And it was wood overlaid with gold. And the top, the lid of it was solid gold. You remember, you know how that there was two cherubim on top of that who wings were folded that way, pointing towards each other, and they were looking down upon the mercy seat. So he would go to the ark and the mercy seat with the blood, and he would sprinkle the blood seven times upon the mercy seat. And when he did this, this was signifying a perfect acceptance before a holy God. You could not... In those days, just saunter into the presence of God any way you want it, any time you want it. You had to come a prescribed way, and you had to come with a sacrifice, and the priest had to take your sacrifice, and it had to be done in certain ways, certain times, and certain days. And so there was rituals. There was all of that had to be done that way for God to accept that. And then, having sprinkled the blood upon the ark of the mercy seat, he would step back, and he would sprinkle it before the mercy seat, which would signify a perfect standing before a holy God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In Hebrews 9 again, and if we read a little further on than we had read earlier, say from verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin unto salvation. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, just leaving aside just for a moment the implications about physical healing in that because there's implications there. But just leaving that aside, he was wounded for our transgressions. By his stripes, we are healed spiritually. First and foremost, we are healed because of the stripes he took on his back, because of the blood that he shed uh, for us. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes were healed. Luke 22, 20. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. A little bit later, we'll come to the table of the Lord. And that's to remind us of the blood that he shed for us. But Christ on the cross made that one sacrifice for sin. He offered up his own blood for all men for all time and he did it once and only once was it needed to be done. Without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Now in the Old Testament we know that that blood of bulls and goats and so forth and rams and lambs It only dealt with the penalty of sin. Their sins were covered for a whole year. All their sins that year now were covered. That dealt with the penalty. The penalty of sin is death. But they didn't die. God forgave them. It was covered. But Christ's blood not only takes away the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. So that sin shall no longer have dominion over us. Now, human beings, we sin. We're not perfect, we sin. But our propensity now is not to sin, we don't want to sin, we're not deliberately going out to sin. We do, but we're not, our lifestyle is no longer living in sin. Thank God he's delivered us from that. It doesn't have that dominion over us that it used to have. That's what the blood does for us. But blood not only had to be shed, it had to be sprinkled. It was not enough for it to be offered, it had to be applied. There is no redeeming quality in shed blood alone unless and until it's applied, until it's sprinkled. There are people who go to church faithfully every Sunday, they even sing in the choir. Some may even preach behind the pulpit they never had the sprinkled blood upon their hearts never it's never happened and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins in Exodus chapter 12 again this is not unfamiliar to almost all of you I'm sure but we need to be reminded in Exodus chapter 12 regarding the Passover remember how they lived in the land of Goshen part of Egypt how Pharaoh who knew not Joseph rose up and began to persecute them Exodus 12 this is but how they had grown so marvelously and multiplied and multiplied that they became a threat to the Egyptians as far as that Pharaoh was concerned and so they, they enslaved them but God raised up Moses to take them out of slavery and to release them from the clutches of the Egyptians and series of plagues came upon Egypt and Pharaoh's neck became harder and harder but here comes the last plague the firstborn of all Egypt both man and beast was going to die and God had tried over and over and over and over and over again to get them to repent but they wouldn't so the death angel was to come, judgment was to fall on the whole land, even on Goshen. But the thing that would save those in Goshen is this Passover. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And the household and if the household is too small for the lamb, let him take his neighbour let him and his neighbour next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a meal of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roast it in fire with unleavened bread and dip with bitter herbs and they shall eat. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roast it in fire, its head and its legs and its entrails. Then shall let, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. And what remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it. With a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and staff in your hand, so shall you eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord." and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when i see the blood i will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when i strike the land of egypt that's very obvious here that lots of lambs were going to have to be slain that lots of blood was going to have to be spilt and shed and it would have to be applied It would not do any good to keep it in the basin. Even if they took it outside their door and put it on a little table and made a little shrine of it, it would not do. It would not work. It had to be applied. It had to be sprinkled on the doorposts and on the lentils, and they had to stay under the blood until the death angel had fully passed over. Had they stepped out and ignored that, they would have lost their firstborn instantly, so this was a serious, serious thing. Notice also how personal this gets. It begins by saying "A lamb and end in verse forty four the lamb and end of verse five your lamb became a very personal thing for that household and you can imagine they had to take the lamb on the 10th day and kill it on the 14th. And you can imagine that intervening period when well, that little lamb was in that house, how attached, particularly the children, to get to the lamb. It would become like a little pet. But they knew it would have to die. And there came a point it had to be put to the knife. And that little innocent life, that innocent blood had to be shed to save them. And the Bible tells us that Christ is our Passover. He is our sacrificial lamb. He is the one that saved us from God's judgment. Aren't you glad for that? His innocent blood had to be shed to cover us from the judgment of God. Now, Christ came, he says, I didn't come to condemn, but to save. Why? Because we were already condemned. We were ready under the judgment of God. Only he came to take away that judgment by shedding his blood so that we would be saved. Amen. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 2, and 18 and 19, that little portion of 1 Peter. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice he said, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on to say, for as much as you're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from the vain tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or without blemish. Paul said in Acts 20, 28, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom... Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And in Ephesians 1 and 7, Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So Peter and Paul, and then John says, in john 1, 1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. In Revelation 1 and 5, John writes, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Do you know today that there is an extreme teaching on grace that is flooding the church to the point where it is said that you should not ever have to confess your sins, that the Holy Spirit will never convict you of your sins. Do you not believe me? It's true. That's what's being said. How they ever ignore those scriptures I've just read, I do not know. If any man sin, John writes to the church. Not right into the word, he's right into the church. But they say he's right into the word, but he isn't. (laughs) He's right into the church. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Where does the blood come in if that's the case? Why do we need the blood? Because we sin. Because we sin. (coughs) And we need the cleansing. The word can cleanse us too, you know, if we keep into the word. It'll wash us, but the blood cleanses, and we need the blood. How is Christ's blood sprinkled on our hearts? How do we apply the blood of Christ? How does that work? Well, the answer is simply by faith, by faith, nobody's Killing a lamb for us. Nobody's putting blood in a basin for us. We don't need to do that. That was a type. That was a shadow. That was a foretaste. Christ was the fulfillment. Now we have to believe it by faith. Now we have to believe that Christ's bloodshed in Calvary cleanses us. And there's no other way you can do that other than by faith. For Romans 3 23 and 25. Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then he gets on to say, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood through faith. Let me just read that little bit again. Whom God sent forth as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood through faith. The word propitiation, there's the same word where we get mercy seat from. where well, the blood was sprinkled. I told you about a moment or two ago. Christ is our mercy seat. He, his blood shed for us, delivers us, saves us, rescues us. And we only can believe that by faith. That's what Paul says. So the moment you said something like this, the moment you prayed something like this, Lord God, I realize I am a sinner <coughs> and I need you to save me. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross and shed his precious blood to save my eternal soul. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. Save my eternal soul. Make me a new creature in you. And I give you thanks for this in Jesus' name, or something like that. But that simple, heartfelt prayer has changed the lives of untold millions, including us today words to that effect but that's what we were meaning and that's what I mean by faith by speaking that by faith believing in our heart confessing with our mouth that's how salvation comes but someone may say well I I pray every day Uh, you know lots of people who's saved has told me well I pray every day without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins but but I go to church every Sunday without the shedding of blood. There's no remission of sins. But, 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 I, but I put an envelope into my church every week without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sins. None whatsoever. But I, I'm a God-fearing person. I, I'm an honest person. I, I pay 100 pence in the pound. I'm a decent person. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's as clear and as plain as is straight is that. There's no other way according to the scripture. Now why is Christ's blood so precious? Why is it so powerful? Why is it different than any other man's blood? Why is it more effective than all the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament? Why is it more vital and more virtuous than that blood that Aaron spread upon that mercy seat? What well, makes it So different. Hebrews chapter seven. Look at verse twenty six. For such a high priest was fitting for us, speaking of Christ. Who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who is holy, harmless, separate from sinners, undefiled. No other man on earth could you say that about? Who is holy, harmless, Undefiled Separate from sinners His birth Actually his conception To be more technical Was absolutely unique No man on earth was ever born And ever conceived The way Jesus was And we know that Absolutely unique And so his blood No wonder Peter called it Precious No wonder it was so different. In Hebrews chapter 9 again, only a little bit before what we read earlier, verse 11 says, But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purif- for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, note this, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Offered himself without spot to God. You see, the Old Testament lamb had to be perfect on the outside, had to be flawless on the outside. No markings, no scars, no imperfections. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, was perfect on the inside. No imperfection, no sin, no flaw. Perfect, flawless, sinless. Even Pilate said, I find No fault in this man. But his wife said, have nothing to do with that just man. Those two thieves on the cross who reeled on Jesus and then one of them repented and said to the other, we deserve this, but this man has done nothing amiss. Romans and Turin, surely this man is the son of God. Holy, harmless, Undefiled Separate from sinners No wonder his blood Is perfect No wonder Peter said It is precious Inwardly spotless What makes it And we're going to close just in a moment What makes it so Dynamic What makes it so practical For us What makes it work in our lives What does it do well, it deals with their sins, doesn't it? And it deals with their past sins. In 1 Corinthians, chapter six, Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But now you're washed, now you're sanctified, Now you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. Such was I and you. But now we're justified. Now we're sanctified. Now the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on the doorposts and the lentils of our heart. Now we've been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. What about present? That lovely verse, we just read it earlier in chapter nine of Hebrews, but verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. If we sin right now, today, and it's not our intention to, but if we do, and we understand and we realize, we can look up and know there's a man in the glory at the right hand of the Father who is our advocate in heaven, the Bible says, to forgive us our sins right now. So thank God our past has been dealt with. But even in our present, regardless of what others are saying, we don't need to confess sin. We don't need to think of it sin. We don't need the Holy Spirit. It doesn't convict us. Of A lot of rubbish. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father to forgive us. What about our future? Well, you know that scripture so well, don't you? 1 John. 1 John chapter 9. Sorry, 1 John chapter 1. There's no nine chapters in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The blood of Jesus Christ takes care of our past Takes care of our present and will take care of our future. It is so powerful, it is so dynamic. And after two thousand years, there is nothing in this universe that can save us except the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing about it. That's why we write about it. That's why we preach about it. That's why we plead the blood. Because we know it's so important and it's so potent, it's so powerful that it takes care of our whole lives. Aren't you glad you're under the blood today? Yes, I know others say it's barbaric and it's medieval and it's way back in the old covenant and we needn't think about that, but aren't you glad we do think about it? And every Sunday we come to this table and here our emblems reminding us as often as you take this, Paul said, these remind us of the precious blood and the precious body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your mercy continually and forever reaches out to us because of what your blood did for us at Calvary. We thank you that it's life-giving, life-imparting. We thank you, Lord, that it destroys sin and breaks the power of it in our lives. And we bless you today for it. We give you thanks for all of your mercies and your grace and your love towards us that you would go to that cross, that you would pay that horrible, desperate price to save us. We thank you, Lord, for that today. We bless you in Jesus' name. Hallelujah.